0: Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'll keep this quick. It's the final day of Gruen and I uh, have to uh, head off to work, but uh, I've got uh, a few minutes just to introduce this episode. Oh, So firstly, I'll give a plug to to Gruen, um, uh, my ABC TV show in Australia. It is episode 10, our final episode, uh, tomorrow, well, today if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, uh, Wednesday. Otherwise, you can watch the entire series on ABC iView until they take that down at some stage. So I encourage you to go and do that. I think it's been our best ever season of Gruen. So, um, you know, there's plenty of good stuff there. And I share as many of the monos and things that I'm allowed to share on Twitter and Facebook and those sort of places if you cannot access it from the country in which you are listening to this. Today's guest, Eddie Perfect, is um, just a really great guy eddie perfect a super talent obviously doing massive things on broadway now but has always been a super talent in my opinion and i was just recently re-listening to australian songs an album that uh, he did with my mates from tripod perfect tripod and had a great conversation with claire Bowditch that you'll hear uh, in the next month or so uh, where we reference one of the songs of hers that they covered for that but anyway that's a bit of a forward sale eddie's going to be great on the podcast today i love this chat we recorded it a month or so ago but um, I think that you're really going to love this. I also have some big announcements. Stand-up. I've been hinting at this for weeks now, but I actually have some announcements I can make. In 2020, uh, uh, those of you who follow these things uh, will know that uh, apart from the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and a random gig here or there, I've taken most of 2020, uh, 2019 off doing stand-up, uh, which is the first time that I have done that. Um, I had to have a think about what I was, wanted to do for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I've done 25 different shows over the last 23 years and I, I just wanted to have a step back and have a look at what I was doing and find something that would really excite me to bring to the festival and then bring to my touring and see how much of the touring that I would fit into next year. So I've come up with a plan. Never a simple plan for me, of course, but I have a plan and here's what it is. I am going to take my Will-Informed show, which is the show I took to Melbourne, which I really loved, but I didn't do anywhere else, to all the major capital cities in 2020. So if you're a major cap at some stage, I am going to come and uh, do my Will-Informed show in your city. Uh, I am going to take my Will-Eagle show, uh, which is my show about being arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga. I'm going to take that to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival again for a return season of two weeks. Uh, It is my most requested show and... Um, I really do enjoy doing it, so I thought, you know what, let's take it back to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, uh, give it another run. It's a slightly different show to the show that obviously was there Two years ago, so if you saw it before and you want to come and see it again, I think you'll have a different experience, you know, through the prism of me being a couple of years away from it happening now. I have some new observations about it all and, you know, time passes and you have different thoughts around things and you tell the story in a different way. So I think it'll be fresh for people who've seen it before, but obviously it's an opportunity for people who have not seen the show before. Uh, to come and see it at the uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I'm not going to take it back to other major capital cities at this stage in 2020, but I am going to take it on a regional tour. So if you are in the regions and I haven't brought Will Eagle your way, at some stage I'm going to try to go out on the road with that show. And uh, you know what? If there are major other capital cities that really would like me to do a return season of that show, it's something that I might think about doing in the future. Okay, what else? Um... Uh, Will Eagle is currently on sale, Um, I think I'm doing that in Wyoming, you can come and see it there. Uh, Brunswick Heads in February, those shows are already on sale, that's Will Informed, so I'm going to do Will Informed uh, at Brunswick Heads um, before I take it to the Adelaide Fringe Festival and then on around the country. So I'll be back in Adelaide with a show that is brand new to Adelaide Will Informed um, for the Adelaide Fringe Festival for two weeks, going to Adelaide, uh, and then yes. Uh, I'm already confusing myself saying all this, by the way. So you can just go to my website or go to my Facebook and my Twitter and these sort of things. Uh, There is a sign-up link on all of those where you can just kind of type in where you live and you can see which shows are coming to you. But there's one more that I haven't mentioned and I need to mention this one because it goes on sale in Sydney very soon and then uh, in Melbourne on Monday. So, in Sydney in January at the Sydney Comedy Store, I am doing my What You Talking About Will shows, which are my completely improvised stand-up shows. Ten shows every night, completely different, all made up on the spot, uh, with the help of the front row normally, is how it works. I chat to some people, I make up some jokes, I go on rambles, I dig myself holes, I dig out of the holes. Uh, They're extremely exciting shows to do, terrifying, a bit like skydiving, but also incredibly thrilling and I think they're really special shows to come and watch because it genuinely is a case of you had to be there. I create something on that night and that audience helps me create it and we share it with each other and it is never repeated. So they're really cool things to do. I get really excited by doing those shows. Uh, They're incredibly tiring so I can only do limited runs of them but I'm going to do two weeks in January at the Sydney Comedy Store before, and this is the drum roll, big announcement, I do two weeks of what you're talking about, Will, as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So I've been working on this show, how I do this show, doing the show enough for the last few years that I finally feel that I am confident enough to take it the big stage at the comedy theatre. I will do ten shows, so ten nights. So uh, to celebrate, uh, I've done my 25 written shows. I'm going to come and do ten completely made-up shows on the spot. So it's very much uh, two weeks of old, two weeks of brand new every night. I'll do my old show Will Eagle um, and people can come and see that if you're not someone who trusts me to just make it all up on the spot and that's not your cup of tea but uh, maybe you haven't seen Will Eagle you can come and see that show or if you're a person who you know has come and seen my written shows over the years and enjoyed you know some of the crowd work at the start and thought you know what I'd like to see that go for 70 minutes well you finally have the opportunity. It'll either be a massive success or a complete disaster, often on the same night, I imagine. Uh, My warning is, if you don't want to get talked to or be in the show, don't book in the front row. Uh, But, you know, uh, other than that, um, please come along to those shows. Uh, Obviously... I'm really excited about doing them. I'm absolutely terrified and scared about doing them, but that's what's exciting me too. I needed to find something that would really re-engage me in the moment, and I think I'm gonna learn a lot out of doing them, um, and I'm just genuinely excited about uh, you know, taking all those shows, all those very different things. I had to think about what I wanted to do next year, and I realized the best way to keep me energized and excited about everything was to do a bunch of different projects, because each of them give me something different and uh so there you go yeah it's a lot right well it's not really i'll probably tour about the same as i normally do apart from this year but there'll just be different shows in the mix to keep it fresh and and keep it interesting along the way so big news there it is um touring plans for 2020 out on the road doing live shows again and more exciting live show live show news to come so twitter or facebook for all those details uh that is the best way to support me if you like this podcast come out and see a live show if you cannot come out and see a live show uh, another way to support the podcast is to go to patreon.com slash willosophy w-i-l-o-s-o-p-h-y uh If you can donate there for as little as a dollar a month, it gives us a base that I can pay all the people who help me put out this podcast on a weekly basis. So if you have been enjoying it coming out weekly, podcast Mike, Mike Hal, and uh, James Fosdike, who does all the original art, um, you know, all get paid for every episode. Uh, I I don't. uh, I don't know why I feel I need to point that out, but I feel like people are like, well, you know, I might not donate if it's for you, but I might donate if it's to, you know, help you pay the people who help you put out this thing week to week. And I think that's probably true. So anyway, <laughs> if you could donate, that's where the money will be going to. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Eddie Perfect and uh, really good run of shows up until Christmas. Some really fun people um, coming up over the next few weeks. So uh, thank you for supporting the podcast uh, every week this year that we've put it out. And um, we're looking forward to a big 2022. All right, Thank you. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, this is how the podcast starts. I'm just going to leap in. I'm not going to preamble. And every time I say I'm not going to preamble, that in itself is a preamble and I get really upset at myself and then I do this deconstruction of the fact that the preamble has also become a preamble and now it's just this really long, it's an actual preamble. It would have been better off if I just got into the podcast without any of this happening but... Uh, I'm very happy to have today's guest here. This is how the podcast starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? Uh, I'm Eddie Perfect. Hello, Eddie Perfect. Hi, Will Anderson. Uh, yeah, we pretend like we haven't seen each other, you know, for the last 20 minutes, yeah. having a chat and a catch up, but it's <laughs> uh, it's nice to see you, sir. You have been away.
1: I have been away. I've, um, I've been away from Melbourne for 18 months and um, 12 of those months have been spent in new york where i live now on the upper west side uh with my wife and two kids and my two girls um so yeah this is my first time back in melbourne and it's good to be on this podcast because you know i'm in a particularly sort of self-reflective mood you know where's home what what am i doing how long am i going to be in new york what do i want to do next you know all that kind of stuff it's a real like um You know, we we always committed to a year in New York. And we're like, let's do a year and then see. And in that year, I um, put two shows up on Broadway. And it was probably one of the most exciting and traumatic years of my life. And um, now the dust is settling on those projects. It's, um, you know, we've committed to stay for another year just so I can get my hooks into another project. And also because it just takes a really long time to um just settled into a new city we're still working out how to city new york is not really like a um uh, a city that's hospitable to life um like other cities are um it's like an ordeal that everybody endures because um they choose to be there because amazing things happen there but the actual city itself is quite complicated and so there's a real sort of um you know surviving the city mentality that goes on and you you learn learn things how to survive the seasons they have seasons there which we don't have here which is and every season is is kind of very has a very different way of um uh kind of forcing you to how you get around and what you do and where you go and where you vacation and it's all very weird and Americans are weird but it's been very interesting well, I would have imagined that you'd run out of stuff to do
0: in New York after a year. I mean, it's not yeah. it's not like there's lot, much going on in that city. What is it like moving to a place that uh, is, you know, regarded as if not the world's greatest city, but uh, yeah, certainly as this, you know, mythical city of opportunity, you know, the city that never sleeps, the place where, you know, particularly in your line of work and your line of, you yeah, know, if you're talking about, you know, musicals, yep. Broadway musical, is, it's, a, it's a term, it's synonymous with the art form. So yes. the idea of going to New York to work in that field, it's not only going to this massive city of energy and contradictions and, you know, uh, like a multi-ethnic city, a city that moves at this incredible pace, everybody's got something going on, a yep. city that isn't saying, a city that says you're from somewhere else, come here and be part of New York, but at yep. the same time, doesn't take any time to show you around or, you know, give you a bit of a brief, it's just like, well, you're here now, get on with it.
1: It almost forcibly tries to repel you out of it. And, um, you know, in the beginning I was like, Oh, this city's like kind of alternating first world, third world on different days. You know, um, the, you know, it's, the streets can be really dirty. The subway system can break down. It's like, it's, feels kind of antiquated and yet it's also very convenient um there are there is like a kind of a convenient when you ask people why they love new york and why they can't live anywhere else it's exceptionally weird to my wife and i that nine times out of ten the answer is convenience like um every stoop has four billion amazon boxes on it every day it's like you know there's a warehouse in new jersey and people are ordering in two hours it's on your door, that's the way people order it in their groceries. It's like the whole place is sort of run on, 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 um, on an app. And yet there are things about it that are really antiquated. You know, the post office is like, you just want to kill yourself. And, um, the healthcare the, system is terrifying. The and garbage
0: on the streets. Garbage alone. just
1: on the streets. Yeah. Um, and it's just a place where like, if you know how I, I like, What I like about New York is I walk fast when I'm on the street. I'm a fast walker. I'm always getting yelled at by my wife and kids to slow down. But I feel like, you know, New York moves at my walking pace. And I really, I really love that. If you, you know, if you're in your stride and you get on the escalator and you keep moving and you're not blocking up things and you're cool. But as soon as you, it's like a, a, a circular circulatory system. If you, if you're a clot in that system, people just hate you, you know. So that's a big part of it and it's a it's a it's like you know the streets and and um, the subway and everything is kind of like a, a a little bit of a stress and um, everything's a hustle everyone's hustling um, so you really have to kind of enjoy that energy. I don't know if that's really I don't know if I'm much of a hustler but what happens in the rooms when you go to work and when you work in music theater I mean um, it's not just an American art form it's an art form that was created on Broadway on those streets and the kind of um, uh, the cultural creative capital they have in the bank on that art form is insane. You know, not just um, directors and writers and script writers and songwriters, but orchestrators and um, music producers and actual producers. and, And the whole thing is like brutal. The whole thing is so competitive and so brutal and so driven by pressure and Fear, And yet, um, there's also incredible art that's created at the same time. So it's like the perfect nexus of commerce and art. So,
0: uh, musical theater is something that, uh, I have seen and enjoyed. <laughs> um, it's something that my mother loved. It was the first, probably the first live performance in a professional sense I ever saw would have been through her prism of musical theater. You what know, was the, that? Well, I, I was trying to remember this yesterday. Actually, weirdly enough, I was having a conversation with somebody about the fact that I remember being bundled into the car. You know, sort of even my teenage years. This is, my dad's a dairy farmer from the road he grew up on. Mm-hmm. Fair to say, musical theatre not his area of expertise. Right. Um, if they, well, you know, mate, you know, the only one he w- may have ever been tempted to go and see was if somebody wrote a musical about Shane Warne. Turns out somebody did. Yep. Uh, <laughs> he did not go and see that either. <laughs>
1: There you go. <laughs> but, <laughs> no.
0: No. If you'd written one about Alan Border, you might have got him into the Right, right. The theatre. He would have he, he thought your Warney musical was too much about Warney's life and not enough about Warney's cricket.
1: Right. Yeah. It would have been a very silent <laughs> musical if it was Border. I mean, I can, can't remember the guy I ever talking. I remember a mustache and a bat, and that's really all I.
0: So, um, uh, yeah, so, but Mum, the, the, by the time we got to the age where we could go to things, we became her, you know, people that she went to things with. Totally. And I think for a while it was as much about her indulging, you know, what she wanted to go and do as as it was about, you know, kind of exposing us to that world. But Absolutely. there was a big, this was kind of peak Andrew Lloyd Webber. Would right. have been the time period. So yes. So, Cats, which... I loved. I know that's a controversial opinion, but mm-hmm. as a fourteen-year-old kid or thirteen-year-old kid or whatever I was when I saw Cats, I was—I'd never been to a proper theatre before. They were singing, dancing, cats. The songs all seemed fun. It seemed like a
1: whole big deal to me. Were you touched by a cat in the theatre? Did they when they come up the aisles and stuff? Did did any cat touch you?
0: I don't think we were in the the prime cat touching seats.
1: If you were, mm. you would be a musical theatre performer right now. Cause I, is, that how,
0: is that how it works? <laughs> if yeah. You're, if you're touched by a cat?
1: Yeah. Cats. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I cannot tell you the amount of people, a music theatre performers I've met mm. on Broadway or in Australia, who were touched by a cat as a kid. And now they are doing music theatre. Well, the Why are you doing musical
0: theatre? Music... Uh, uh, Mr. Mistopheles came down from the stage and touched me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it is literally it. It blew people's minds as kids. And we are in – the the musical I wrote in New York, Beetlejuice, is in the Winter Garden Theatre. That is where cats lived. That's where it started and ran for 487 years or whatever it did. So, um, you know, the ghosts of those cats are alive and well in our theatre and a lot of our cast saw cats in that theatre and we're touched by a cat, and that's why that's how they credit being on Broadway for. Uh, what cat were you touched
0: by? Where did the sort of that? <laughs> I-
1: <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny!
0: I was not touched by a cat. So, but what was your cat? What was the broader cat that touched you that led you to the world of what
1: you do now? Um, look, it's really easy to sort of um, sort of post-rationalize how. Because I have a very weird path to to doing what I do now. It was it was never like I meet a lot of young kind of hungry people who um, that they know that the theatre is what they want to do. Um, that was that was never me. I wanted to be a visual artist. I went and studied visual art, and music was just something I enjoyed doing. Um, I can't even recall the first musical I saw, but my my father taped a live simulcast. Um, recording on the radio on ABC FM when I was very young, of um, Angela Lansbury and George Hearn in a production. I think it was with the Metropolitan Opera of Los Angeles, maybe in about eighty three um, of Sweeney Todd, Stephen sometimes Sweeney Todd, and he went on to, it had to go on two cassettes, and those cassettes were went in the combi van, and, and my um, my parents are teachers holidays were always getting in the combi and driving somewhere and camping, you know, national parks. That's what we did. And on the, you know, six, eight hour journeys, we listened to Sweeney Todd and we listened to um, Pirates of Penzance weirdly. We couldn't think of two more different musicals. And I actually kind of think that, you know, a lot of um, Sweeney Todd is a, is a, and for those people that are listening that don't know it is a, is a musical about a um, sort of set in Victorian uh, London. Um, a barber is falsely accused um, of a crime and transported to Botany Bay. Um, Fifteen years later, he comes back. He, he's very changed and he changes his name to Sweeney Todd from Benjamin Barker and he, he was, was a barber and he sets about re-establishing his barber shop and getting revenge on the people that um, destroyed his life and he does that by killing them when he's shaving them, and his accomplice, uh, Mrs. Lovett, bakes those people into pies and they feed them to people. So it's an incredibly macabre, dark um, story of of kind of, um, you know, I guess vengeance and injustice. And I loved it, loved it. It's still my favourite musical to this date. And I think that made a really big impression on me uh, because everything I've written has been dark in some way. I find black comedy... um, Kind of cathartic, you know, finding the raw nerve and putting your finger right on it. So that would, I'd say, that would be my cat.
0: Also, that juxtaposition, I imagine, with the, what you're making in is, in essence, the music and the musicality, musicianship, the composition, the uh, acting, the sets—all these sort of things are so well done that there's juxtaposition of the darkness in the material.
1: Yes, and just the possibilities of telling stories. Um, by combining theatre and music was amazing to me. I remember the first compact disc when compact disc came out. This is showing my age, but um the first compact disc I bought was um was again Stephen Sondheim's um, production of company. Um and you know, I I was always really interested in music. I, I I had piano lessons from the age of five and six and then I quit because my teacher worked out that I was playing from ear and and not reading music and forced me to sight read and I lost interest and I quit. And then I taught myself to play the piano and I listened to things and I imitated things and I've always had kind of, um, good ears in that respect. But, um, I also just kind of like had this, I don't know if this kind of sounds, um, um, arrogant, but I just remember as a little kid, just, I get, I get music. I get it. Like I hear it all the time. And, Um, I, you know, I, I kind of would lose myself in listening to music and then pulling it apart and how does it work and, and not just, um, you know, not just what the lyric and the melody are doing and how that develops, um, uh, character and mood and, um, and atmosphere, but also how the orchestrations fit with that and, um, um, and how the harmony supports that stuff or works against the lyric. That stuff was just endlessly fascinating to me. But I never thought I would do it. I just was like, I just want to be with it. But I never, you know, I grew up in Mentone and people didn't write musicals in Mentone. I mean, I, I you know, I, yeah, it just didn't seem like something I would ever do. None of what I'm doing ever seemed inside the realms of possibility. But I just kind of followed things that I enjoyed and got lost in them. Uh, none of what I'm doing
0: seemed within the realms of possibility. I mean, I think that is, you know, you, you talk about that idea of reflecting on things. And like I always say to people that, the, you know, if you want to know how I got to where I am now, I'm the worst person to ask because that post-rationalization, it's it's an incredibly powerful thing. And where you are now, your mind molds itself to explain the uh, the key points as being all part of that important narrative. But yep. you'll never truly know whether they are or not. So, no. how did a boy from Mentone get to the uh, yeah, getting nominated for a Tony Award for writing musicals?
1: Well, I um I started writing songs very late, um, at around about the age of nineteen, I think. And then, and
0: what do you like at 19? Tell me, give me a little bit of a, a description of where you're at in your life, you know, what your interests are, what you're doing with yourself.
1: Um, at 19, I had done a year of printmaking at RMIT and at the, and art had always been my love. Um, but if I think about it, I enjoyed the process of creating images and I enjoyed life drawing and an observational drawing and I enjoyed being expressive, but it, I, if, if it was connected to anything, if the output or the, the art itself was connected to anything, I was unaware of, I was, un, it was unconscious and going to art school, um, I was confronted by teachers who rightly wanted to know what it was connected to, what I was trying to say, why I was obsessing over these certain images or, or whatever. And I couldn't really describe it. And I also felt like, um, you know, it was just, it was just images to me. I just enjoyed, I just enjoyed the look of a line on paper. I, you know, where it, that, that was something that appealed to me. And, um, and that is normally enough. You know, you just kind of keep your head down. You just keep making stuff, and this is what I do. This is my art. But I was well, the guy who does lines. Yeah, look at this. Look yeah. at that line. Look at that line. I mean, I still look at a like a, a drawing or a painting, mm. and you you go, "Holy hell! Look at look at that <laughs> that, that that marking on that page is yeah. amazing." Um, and. I was singing at the same time. So uh, I always loved music and I had a singing teacher and I was singing because he was an opera teacher. I was singing a lot of opera. And then I decided that while I was young, I should go to an institution and and learn, study classical singing. So I went to Melbourne University to the conservatorium, studied classical singing there. And I hated it. It was an atmosphere. I mean, this is not me bagging out Melbourne University. I think all conservatoriums are like this. Um, It comes with the... The act of recreating art from the past and trying to perfect it, and um, and as a consequence, um, there is nothing you can do really in, the, in by choosing a song from the classical rep- repertoire that won't draw you into immediate comparison with about five million other performances of that that are better, classic, t- you know, timeless. Maria Callas sang that song. Bryn Tervell sang that aria. You know, like you, the, and I, and at, because of that, there was an atmosphere. I believed. a performance aspect of fear that the, that the prevailing culture of it was you hid yourself away in your room and and you worked and you worked and you worked and you worked and then you came out and you didn't show any weakness. And I just inherently knew that that was bullshit, that, um, performance is immediate and raw and that character needs to supersede technique sometimes, And I knew that very quickly that that would not make me an opera singer. I did not have the discipline to try and, you know, achieve perfection. I just wanted to communicate. So I, I applied to go to Whopper to the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts to study music theater. And I got in and I didn't know if I could act. I didn't really know if I was much of a singer. I certainly wasn't much of a dancer. Um, And is this
0: like, I mean, timeline-wise? Because I'm thinking about the most famous graduate who's ever come out of Whopper would be Hugh Jackman, right? Mm -hmm. Hugh Jackman was a Whopper graduate, and you know, greatest entertainer that humanity's ever put together. Yeah. So, (laughs) so fine specimen. uh, How many, uh, how many years before you went through that course had Hugh Jackman gone through that course, and was Hugh Jackman already like a legendary former student, or were you in that zone where he hadn't quite become Hugh Jackman yet?
1: he he had been through. I don't know how many years earlier, but he'd certainly made an impression. And he's and I and I get the feeling that when he was there, you know, some students have the glow and some yeah. don't, um, and that sometimes doesn't have any bearing on reality afterwards. But I got the distinct impression that he had the glow that he was someone that people loved working with and incredibly hard worker and had a, uh, a just an innate gift um, both for acting and just a, a, a great instrument in his voice and. Um, he was doing, he was doing musicals. It was, he was like the lead in Sunset Boulevard and I think it was like Sunset Boulevard, Beauty and the Beast was sort of what was happening for him. And at that point he was just a big deal in music theater. So yes, he was someone everyone was proud of, but he certainly wasn't a Hollywood movie star at that point. By Um, the way,
0: him in Beauty and the Beast, one of the shows that I saw with my mum Really? At at the theater.
1: Yes. Yes, Yes, indeed. Right. That was a big one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: I think that might have been the last time. Actually, my mother and I went to the musical theatre together. Might have been Hugh Jackman in Beauty and the Beast. I should actually take her back to the musical theatre. Yeah, uh, yeah. I might fly her over to New York, take her to see Beetlejuice.
1: She'd love it. She would love it. Actually, she would love. Bet-Ges. She would absolutely love it. It's crazy.
0: Um, so okay, so
1: you're over at Whopper. Yeah, Western Australia. Also, had you ever lived interstate at that point? No, I hadn't. And I, but I, it was great because I was trying to escape a girlfriend, my first girlfriend and my first serious girlfriend. And it was like, it was not a, it was not a great time. And, um, and so I think that it was kind of subconsciously, um, part of wanting to go and get away. I felt like I was in a rut and over in Perth, uh, and this is gonna sound corny as hell, but I had some amazing teachers, not necessarily, um, just the teachers that were full-time staff there, but they have guest teachers come in. And one of them that made a very big impression on me was Nick Enright, who's now passed away. Um, And he was really supportive of of me, even though I felt like I had no idea what I was doing and everything was kind of raw. But he was the first person that kind of was... um, uh, like really positive about what I was doing.
0: And what was it about him that you responded to, or what was it about you that he responded to? Are you aware? May, you might may, may not be aware of what the second thing is,
1: but I guess you are aware of what the first one is. Well, I mean, the caveat that comes with this is that, is that any, anyone that has ever known or worked with Nick Enright, and he worked with students in institutions all over Australia, and he was an incredible educator as well as an you know, unbelievable playwright and lyricist. Um, he had that ability to um, have a, a profound impact on everybody. Very rare when you meet those people. And I remember when he passed away, there was a, a, a kind of a, a service, um, a memorial for him. And uh, one of uh, the one of my great acting teachers, Marcel Schmitz, just talked about working with him. And she said, he's the only person that could come up and give you this hug. And right when you thought it should end, he kept holding on until it turned into like an event and then he would break it and it would feel so special and so personal and then he would go and do that to somebody else with somebody else and you didn't you didn't mind and that was the kind of he had this this kind of like um incredible benevolence and an amazing spirit and he was um yeah he was uh, a, a great acting, just a great acting teacher, you know, and you're breaking it down in drama school. Like you're trying to work out how to act, you know, how do I access all the things inside me? How do I make things real? How do I connect with emotion? And and you're in a bubble as well, not just because you're in a drama institution, but also because you're in Perth and um, there's no family around so us. He's eating, breathing, living, dreaming theater.
0: And also, I mean, the thing that always occurs to me is that, Perth is not really famous for like Perth has this amazing institution that is doing all these things, yes. But it's not necessarily emblemic of what people consider when they first think about Perth.
1: No, no, and it's actually an, it's an advantage because um, if you're studying drama on the east coast, you have much more access to the industry. There's much more likely that a you know um, a casting director or a or an agent might come and see one of your productions. You know that there might be you know there's And I really remember in third year when you put together a showcase that you're going to take back to the East Coast and and perform for agents and casting directors as your graduation, I remember going, oh, we have have to take this to the world. And I remember the self-consciousness that came in then and how that changed everything, this very safe place where everyone fell on their ass at least one time a day, a place which was like built on failure, Uh, the opposite to Melbourne University where... You know, you stumbled, you fell, you tried things, you experimented, you had successes, you had failures, you know, it was it was a real place of practical learning. Um, and that was heightened by the fact that we trusted each other, our class trusted each other, our teachers. What was a I think back then and it feels like a Shakespearean dream, we used to like rehearse scenes and and dance routines on the lawn, you know, like it was it was you know, it was insufferable, really, from the outside. When you think about it, it was very strange. Um, I can't imagine ever being able to be back in that headspace or phys- physical space. It, it was a truly extraordinary experimental time.
0: How 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 have you been with the idea of uh, you know falling down? You know, the idea of you know picking yourself apart so you can put it back together. Is that something that you've been comfortable with? Something that you
1: crave or is it something that gives you a level of discomfort? I think it gives you a level of discomfort and I, you know, um, uh, I've been, I've had some pretty epic things go badly and um, lots of things fail. I always feel like most, most things kind of, you know, like most of it fails and then a little bit of it succeeds, you know, like uh, people always, I don't know how to describe it except for. You know, and the if it's the if the Olympics, you just want to you just want to land up somewhere on that podium. Bronze, great. Bronze is amazing. Bronze probably means you get asked back. You know, um, but I um yeah, it, I, it
0: is always like I mean today on the day we're recording this, and I won't go into the specifics, but um, a show that uh, a friend a friend of mine has been doing it got cancelled off there, and the the gleefulness in the reporting around it. It, it was yeah. one of those things where I was just like, Gu- guys, most things fail. Yeah. Like it, the rare exception is the ones that work. The idea that we're judging these pieces of entertainment with so many complex and moving parts yeah. as being a failure because they did, most things don't work. If you look at most things that are put on air in the television world, most things don't work. There is a very few that yeah. do, but we shouldn't be quite as hard on judging things that for whatever reason didn't connect with people or
1: didn't work. I agree. I mean, but when you're starting out, um, Uh, well, it never ends. There's always this sense (laughs) of proving yourself, you know, that if something, something fails, then, um, how do you, how do you, um, how do you separate that failure from your own self-worth? That's the, that's the big thing.
0: That's a great question. So how, how do you separate that failure from your own self-worth?
1: Um, I think you have to, I think you have to look at it's difficult because there are people that are totally deluded that probably shouldn't be doing what they're doing. And then they're like, you know, I've just got to keep going. I, I mean, I feel like the universe funnels you one direction or another, and luck has a lot to do with it. But, um, I was talking to Lucy, my wife, Lucy last night on um, FaceTime and we were, you know, we were kind of talking about the year. And I mean, I, I had a, at a great year and lots of things go really well, but then there were things that went really badly. I got, um, you know, I got absolutely hammered in the New York Times by both head critics for King Kong. I got a terrible review for Beetlejuice out of town in the Washington Post. And then in the same week, uh, King Kong opened and I got an, I got hammered in the Washington Post again within the same seven-day time period. I mean, that's got to be some kind of record. Um, I came to New York with two projects on Broadway out of nowhere. I have a fucking ridiculous last name. And I'm Australian and I, I copped a lot of, hate. people did not want me to do well and things didn't go well. And there was one point where I literally thought, what have I, what have I done? I've, ta- I've brought my entire, my whole family have invested in this dream of me writing for Broadway. I've pulled them out of school and their home and their friends. And I've dragged them across the world to New York. And now I'm, they're they're seeing their husband, their father get completely decimated, and I was like, I wonder, you know, will, you know, will they lose faith in me? What have I done? You know, how can how can I, how can I sort of survive this with my sanity and my um, my uh, self respect and my self esteem intact and still be a good dad and a good husband and be positive. It got dark, man. It got really dark at some, at a couple of points. Um, but I, and I remember talking to my agent, um, Beetlejuice had opened. It got really mixed reviews. New York times found it kind of exhausting and, and insufferable. The theater community really didn't kind of want to get on board with, um, Beetlejuice. And they were saying it was a mess and a disaster and it's going to close in, two weeks. And, um, all that was going on, but the show was doing great in the theater. The thing that, that really counts, you know, the transaction between the show and the audience was going great gun. So it was a very weird disconnect. I remember talking to my agent and he was like, um, look, I think for whatever reason, the theater community has decided not to like Beetlejuice and, um, and they also don't like you because they Everybody else that is working on Broadway is, is an American and <laughs> and all the work and the graft yeah. has been visible to the audience and they've seen a progression. And they don't and and then said, old, I know the
0: bloody crocodile two musicals from down yeah. under comes over.
1: Yeah. Comes over. Who does he think he is? Where's he come from? Why haven't they given this job to someone that's been working for it? No. No none of the work that I'd done to get there. Um uh, you know, to, to literally write myself from one side of the planet to the other was was noticeable or, or um, given any credit for. And he said, I think you just got to eat it on this one. They just, they don't like you, but you've gone through the fire. So, you know, the next thing will come and you write that. And this time, you know, you'll have a relationship and people will see that you've earned it for better or worse. And I was in this very weird place where I was like, do you Uh, everything is, it's been kind of horrible and dispiriting and difficult, but I never, I never doubted my ability to write because I wouldn't have been there. There's no way they would have given me the reins to a, what was it, a $26 million musical if I couldn't write. I knew there was something good about the show and I knew that there was something special about the writing. And I was just like, well, I'm just, this is what I do. and I'm going to keep doing it. And then at some point they'll see. And then the next day, and we also, there's like awards season. So there's not just like the Tony awards before that, there's the drama desk awards, the, um, Outer Critics critic circle awards, the Lucille Lortel awards. It's like, there's heaps of awards. Beetlejuice is like in none of those things, except for maybe design. David Corrin's is incredible design. But other than that, there's no love for Beetlejuice at all. And then um, I had that kind of conversation with my agent and I was like, you know what? I spoke to Lucy and I'm like, you know, I'm I'm going to just keep writing. I'm going to keep doing it. This is what I do and I'm going to keep doing it and it'll be, it'll be okay. And then the next morning I was like, oh, Jesus, there's a Tony Award nominations. And I was like, I can't, it's just, the, this will be the last humiliation and then I'll just get on with it. The next t- you know, tomorrow I just start writing. And then we, I got nominated for, we got nominated for best musical. We got nominated for eight Tony Awards out of, Nowhere, and people were like, What? <laughs> what? Beetle, what the hell? Like, people were like, Shocked, like, What the hell is going on? And so, people were confused and annoyed about that. They were like, I don't know what's going on there. Um, but I was like, Holy smoke, this is crazy! I went from like being, you know, like shuffling around and dressing down, depressed, just working out what to do next. To having to put on a suit and go to the Sofitel in New York, where there are 40 rooms set up with press, and they march you around from room to room. How does this feel, this Tony nomination? And I'm like, how do you describe that? Like, it's like a lifeline. That's what it is. It's a complete. And then not only that, is it like back here in, in Australia, they really picked up on the negative press around both King Kong and and Beetlejuice, and there were like articles about, you know, New York critics slam. Um, Eddie Perfect's Beetlejuice. And I was like, oh, Jesus, guys. Like, you know, come on. I have some good ones in there. And so it was like, I was like, of all the awards, the Tony Awards are the one that means something to Australians. So I was like, okay, okay, I'm still, I'm, I'm still in there. And what it gave Beetlejuice was a chance to perform at the Tony Awards. And we'd done a performance on the Today Show the, in Rockefeller Plaza where – We did the opening number and I rewrote all the lyrics to be about, um, being, Beetlejuice being on the Today Show. And I didn't realize this, but it's kind of a common thing in Australia to like craft a song for a TV event. You know, I'm sort of used to doing that, but I didn't realize that that doesn't happen on Broadway. People don't change their lyrics. They just do a bit from the show and that's that. And we did that and people were really like, um, quite taken by the fact that we'd taken that risk. And I was like, what if, we, what if we rewrite the opening number to be about Beetlejuice just crashing the Tony Awards? And the producers were like, all right. And so I rewrote the, the lyrics for that. Um, and we started rehearsing it. And it was crazy because Alex Brightman, who plays Beetlejuice, is doing one version of the opening number at night and rehearsing a completely different set of lyrics during the day. Um, we sorted it all out. Um, we were recording the cast album at the same time, which was really exciting. And that was sounding amazing. We we're really excited to get that out. Um, and the night, the, the, the rehearsals for the Tony Awards came around I, and I go to rock, uh, what is, what's it called? Radio City Music Hall. I'd never been in there before. And I, walk... one of the most iconic venues Holy in the entire world. It's insane. The place is insane. I've seen it on film, you know, like I've seen filmed clips and stuff. But I walked in there and I was like, holy smoke. And there's like a kind of a weird cardboard cutout with my face on it on a chair. And I was like, oh my God. And we start rehearsing our Beetlejuice number. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if this is any good. I don't, I, you know, I just had, was, I had no ability to gauge by looking at something. I'm like, Obviously I've got no idea because I'd put stuff up that I thought was great. And it had been decimated. So I was like, I don't know anymore. And I remember I left the rehearsal early after we'd kind of done a few runs. I was like, I just can't watch that anymore. There are about 20 brand new jokes in there that we haven't tested on anyone. And we're going to put them up at the Tony Awards in front of, a you know, millions of people. And we have no idea if they're going to work. And I'm just like terrified. So the night of the Tonys came in and then the performance happened and, um, I remember thinking, oh, you know, that was okay. And Lucy was like, that was good. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I just don't, I don't know. But it um, it absolutely changed the narrative around our show because it, it was a sort of fourth wall break and because Alex Brightman is an absolute genius, comic genius and musical genius and nailed it. And because all the jokes were about people in the audience and, and it was relevant to the night, it just kind of took off. And then the album came out. And that broke out of the New York bubble, and people really got on board with that. Then all of a sudden, our show became something that people wanted to see, even though we're, you know, like critically being told it was like a kind of a mess.
0: Well, funnily enough, it it, uh, it, it almost suited what the show is and what it's about because Beetlejuice isn't, you know, it isn't lay-miss. No. You know, and, you know, it has that aspect of, it almost meant that you found yourself in the space that you needed to be in the first place. It's very hard to start out like that. It's very hard for that to be your game plan. But, you know, it became the sort of daredevil, to use a comic book reference, of that world where it was the, here's your regular, you know, kind of musicals, and now here's this thing that's off to the side and shouldn't be doing what it's doing and isn't playing by the rules and is doing something different. And that Beetlejuice character from the movies. Has that anarchic sort of spirit about it. So the That's musical right. itself started to, what you were doing publicity wise and at the Tony and around these things started to actually feed into the attitude of what the show is as well. So it was a night. I mean, Lay Miz couldn't do that same thing where they rewrite the the lyrics to Lay Miz to, you know, to yeah. roast the Tony audience.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, um, one of the things that uh, one of our book writers, Anthony King, did, which was quite um, uh, uh, healing in a way. Was he dug up all of the original reviews of the Beetlejuice movie after we opened out of town and we got absolutely hammered? We got called a coke snor- snorting, f bombing disaster, and uh, charmless and offensive and all that stuff. Uh, it was like it was so bad. And he and then he he pulled up all of the original Beetlejuice movie reviews and they were very similar, very weirdly similar. And I remember. Um, uh, uh, a friend of mine in New York is a director, a guy called Bartlett Sher, who I, I really admire. I really respect him. He's an amazing director. I remember talking to him and um, saying, you know, you know, things did not go well out of town. And he said, you know, just don't talk about the show. Don't, no know, trumpets. Don't declare anything. Just put your head down. Work on it. Just flying under the radar and let people discover it. And I mean, I don't have any control over how publicity works, but I certainly um, we came into we came into um, into New York with not much of an advance, scarily close to closing incredibly early, maybe even before we opened. The only thing we had to sell the show was the show itself. The show had to be good, and from the first preview, it was like crazy. Uh, and the Winter Garden Theater is. Um, uh, it, it is on its own block, weirdly. Um, it goes from Broadway, has an entrance on Broadway and a stage door on, on, Seventh uh, Avenue. And there was a line around the entire theater waiting to get in on the first preview and everyone was dressed up in Beetlejuice stuff. And it was in, the whole thing was insane. Um, we had an incredible preview period, um, audiences going nuts, but we didn't, we never enjoyed, never enjoyed it. Because we knew we had the exact same experience in Washington D.C. There was this cult thing happening with people coming back three or four times. They knew the lyrics. They, you know, it was it was insane. And then it just got destroyed by the critics. And we were like, this is probably going to repeat. And we were li- we were literally hoping for mixed reviews. But I think in a way, it's kind of become sort of like a little cult cultish. I mean, you can't be you can't have everyone love you and be cult. That's not what cult is. You and know?
0: well, Beetlejuice the original film is a cult film. It's not a wildly regarded as a classic. It's an incredible cult film and it's still uncomfortable watching. But I, I watched it again recently and uh, it's always been one of my favourite movies. But you realise how unsympathetic that main character is at, at a lot of the time and how anarchic and you know, kind of biting. I mean, it sometimes reminds me of like an episode of The Young Ones or something like <laughs> yes. that. It has this very punk sort of spirit to it. And, yes. you know, it's, it's got a bit of David Lynch in it as well. It's like, I mean, it really, it's, you know, it it isn't sort of, you know, a, a mainstream story that everybody has this universal level of affection for in the first place. Yeah. So yeah. to pretend that it is, you, you mentioned the criticism because I think, I think probably more than anywhere in the world, Broadway is the one place where, you know, the reviews are, are, well, at least can be very important. You know, people put out the shows and they need those good reviews. That's what's driving people to the the theatre and people are looking at reviews. Like, you know, there's other places in the world where I would say to people, the reviews don't matter. And it turns out in this case, the reviews don't matter also, but... But yeah, it, it's much more intense. The focus around the reviews in that world, isn't it?
1: It is, and especially the New York Times, that still carries weight. Um, and it's just a, a part of making theater in New York that everyone has to deal with. And it's it's people are obsessive about it, and um, you know, there are other shows in our season that were like the critics' pick and hailed as like the second coming of musical theater genius, and um. And you know they might they aren't faring as as well as us. And w- one thing I've learned is that you just never know what's going to happen. But we, you know, we were pretty depressed in DC, and I remember running into the book writers on the street, and it was raining, and we were so down, and we were like, "Let's just take 24 hours to lick our wounds, and then we're going to get together, and we're going to talk about what we're, what we're going to do," and we wrote ourselves off the ropes, totally reinvestigated the show, every character, every song, every moment. I, I cut numbers and wrote other numbers. We, we took what we thought we wanted to say. Um, and we made sure we were saying it and we, we, we just didn't stop. It was like from DC to New York was three months of absolutely forensic rewriting and you know we ter- people only had the perception of the show from the reviews, but um, and a lot of people say they're rewriting their show, but they might not necessarily change anything. But that was one of the greatest creative um, achievements or things I've ever been a part of in my life. The attitude of the entire creative team and my collaborators, the authors, to not give up and to and to tell the story you wanted to tell, and then to have people understand it and and get it was, um, really, really extraordinary. And you just don't know, nobody knows what's going to happen. No one has a clue. I mean, I had some kind of like Rocky experiences working on Kong. I mean, I want to get into it, but overall, you know, that wasn't a very happy experience for me creatively. And when bad things went down, it was because I wasn't in the room. So, I just had this rule with Beetlejuice when we went to Broadway. I was like, "Always be in the room. I am never not going to be in the room." Anything bad that happened to me or any other creative, any time there a, a consensus was formed about their work was in their absence, and it's not malicious. It's just you have to you have to be there. So when we were in um, previews for Beetlejuice, we'd get in there about ten a.m you know, set up for a rehearsal and we'd rehearse with the cast with all our changes from about midday till, um till dinner, which is around about five or five 30. Then we'd have dinner and then we'd do the show. um, And then afterwards we would gather in the lobby, the entire creative team. um, The director would give a bunch of notes to everyone and then we'd break off into groups and do notes. And I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to be the last person to walk out of this building every night. And that meant, um, usually about two a.m. and I would walk with the director. Alex Timber's amazing director. I would walk with him until I until I saw him walk down the street. I, I wouldn't let him out of my sight. Now that's a little bit crazy. It's going kind to of seem like I don't, you know, I didn't trust him, which is absolutely not the case. But I just did not want to get to the end of the Beetlejuice process without honoring the full my full capacity to be available hundred percent of the time. Sometimes we'd walk out the door of the Winter Garden Theatre at 2 a.m. and he'd go, "What do you reckon? Do you reckon that do you reckon that dance break feels a little bit long?" And it's like 2 a.m. And you know, you'd be then able to talk about it or do you think this song is doing what it's supposed to do? Is it landing? If you're not there for that conversation, then you don't get a say in that conversation and that can really affect what ends up on stage. So I was like, I'm not going. I am not letting go of the reins on this one. So I didn't really sleep for, <laughs> for about two months, you know, getting ready for, to do Beetlejuice on Broadway. But I certainly felt like I got to opening night and I was like, everything I could have done, I did. And that's good.
0: What's that process of... Uh, one of my great frustrations over the years, um, when I have frustrations around creative collaborative work, is other people's... Uh, lack of desire to just be able to pick something apart to put it, put it back together. Like I, I enjoy the process of, um, in fact, at the moment I'm taking some time with one of my shows literally just, uh, I had an opportunity to record it for a streaming service. Yep. And I actually said to Kevin, who's, uh, you know, both of our manager, uh, I said to him, I said, no, 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 I want to live with it for another year because I just want to p- pick it apart first and put it back together just to see if there's a way that it'll work li- like, And it's probably the best show that I've ever done, but I just feel like there's still something that I haven't quite worked out about it. And I need yep. to, I need to you know, spend the time doing it. I need some time to be able to you know, pull it apart, put it back together. And to me, that's a really creatively satisfying, even though sometimes it's when something is in crisis when you're doing that. Um, that, that process of, you know, working on it and working together with people to try to make it better is something that I've always enjoyed about doing Gruen, the TV show I do, because that's really the attitude of everyone in that team is it's a problem solving attitude. We're talking about the advertising industry. Your wife has appeared on the show and she understands, you know, that they're from a problem solving industry. You'd know that from her, you know, a lot of the time her day at work is, what's the problem that needs to be solved? How do we solve that problem? Right, Like being in that headspace of going, we're in the problem-solving game. Let's solve this problem. is exciting and creative. But where do you start? So when you're looking at the show and when you're looking at the overall, how do you know which bits that you should be, you know, picking apart and which bits you... How do you not get caught up in the idea of thinking that it all needs to be pulled apart and then you can't put it back together again?
1: Well, I have come to realize that that's the director on Broadway. That's the director. If you don't have a director that forensically knows how to run a development process and Beetlejuice was developed over nine years. And I was there for the last four. Um, the book writers were writing that script for three years before I came on board. Um, and they run multiple projects because you can't just work on one thing for nine years. There's no, you have to work on multiple things and it's just a juggle. And, I guess a, a, a director on on Broadway is probably like what you would consider a line producer in in um in TV, film and TV. Um uh you, you know you're constantly greasing the wheels of collaboration. You're working out when you're going to do a development lab. I think we did about 10 or 12 develop, development labs that started off at 1 week and Epically, one went for five weeks. I mean, five weeks is the amount of time you would in Australia you would rehearse a proper professional show and that's mm-hmm. it. We did five weeks of working on Beetlejuice and we did a one showing and then we packed it away and we wrote again. It's um it it requires a culture that understands um what the development process is and respects it and invests in it. And we don't have the resources or, or really it's not it's not. I don't. I've come to believe it's not even laziness. It's just not knowing how you can develop something. Like the amount of steps and the amount of time and um and the process how that runs. It's just they know how to make musicals over there, and you can spend ten years working on something and it can be a complete dud. It might last a two weeks. It's a very heartbreaking business, but it is. It is an extraordinary amount of re-investigating something. So for, I wrote Belges for four years. I cut 17 songs. I mean, I cut more songs than that, but there are 17 completely finished songs that were cut from that show because we dropped a character or we changed a scene or, we, or, or you know, a different person went to the netherworld or, you know, Lydia doesn't meet up with her mother. Hang on, or, so
0: how many songs are in the, the
1: version of the musical that is now on Broadway? Uh, 23. And you cut 17? Yeah, yeah. So I was kind of full on and... Um, also because, you know, I was like new and I was in pleasing mode and I wanted, you know, like to, I, I, you know, I had this thing where if I'm going to work on Broadway and I'm going to write from Melbourne, I am, there's always this kind of weird thing when you have to have a call because Mm. everyone's, we had like, um, people in New York, we had people in Los Angeles and me in Melbourne, someone's got to eat it on the time zone. And I was like, I'm just going to eat it. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to turn up whenever they want me. And... You know, I got kids in the house sleeping, so I would I would get up at two AM and and there was like a spot on um the bike path with a kind of a picnic table. I would sit in the dark and take calls there because I wanted to be able to talk. I wanted to be able to express myself on the call without going, um, yeah, I just I really think, you know, we need to I was like, oh, you know, you need to be able to be in it like it's daytime. So people would be like, What is that? Is that birds? Are they parrots? And I'm like, Yeah, man, I'm in Princess Park and <laughs> you know like I took calls by rivers. I was like, anywhere where I can, I got a really loud voice. I just wanted to be not self-conscious. So that was, you know, that was a really, that was a really important part of it. And I was also, you know, I wanted, I wanted to prove myself that I could write for these people that led me down a path of probably being a little bit too accommodating sometimes because, you know, um, it's like, if you're too good at answering emails, you just get more emails. You know, if you're really fast at turning around songs, it, it's much easier for people to cut them or to go, oh, I think we should do this. You know, I remember getting to, to New York for one of our writing labs and the, and the, I'd just gotten in and I was like jet lagged out of my mind and the writers knocked on my hotel door and they were like, we've got this idea for the act, but it means cutting like three quarters of it. We're going to do something completely different. And I was like, is this re- really happening? Cause that in my head, I'm like, okay, well that's, that's um, six songs and we're here for five days working on this act and they're going to go into their room because they write together. They've known each other since college these two guys. Scott Brown and Anthony King, amazing comedy writers, monsters. And they're going to go into their room and they're going to do their thing where one of them sits at the keyboard and the other one improvises. They basically improvise their scenes and they're very funny. Um and I wouldn't see them. and I'd be in my I'd be in a tiny hotel room with one of those weird glass coffee tables and my tiny MIDI um keyboard and my laptop uh, and a microphone trying to replicate, you know, the space and the and, uh, and the studio that I have in my home in Melbourne, getting six songs written in one week and then trying to pitch them to producers. And I was like, um, that was the first time where I went, I can't do this. I can't chase you guys around the paddock like this anymore. We've got to we've been working on this act for three months and you can't throw all this stuff out and expect me to be able to write and then, or get to this pitch, the producers on Saturday with no songs or with half done songs. And that was the only, the first and the only kind of confrontation we had after that point. And it was so kind of passive because I, I I was so um, the frustration had been building for so long that I knew I would be too emotional if I said it to them. I was like, and I was jet I was like, I'll probably cry if I have to to do this. So I wrote an email to the two of them. I'm like, guys, I, I can't work like this anymore. And they just wrote back an email going, "Yeah, you're right. Let's keep the act as it is and work on it." And that was the only closest we came to kind of having a confrontation. But from that point on, we all, you know, very much trusted each other.
0: Um, I imagine, actually, you know, I'll just ask you. So you're coming over into this well-established scene, mm-hmm. you know, like, I mean, you know, the biggest, I guess, like, you know, that in the West End in London, I guess, but like, this is, you know, New York, this yeah. is Broadway musicals, you know, yeah. this is as big as it gets. And like you said, you know, not welcomed necessarily with open arms. Yeah. Not like, oh, God, thank God you're here. You know, <laughs> like a bit more of like, who yeah. the fuck are you coming over here, taking our Broadway musical hey, jobs? Guys, all, the,
1: all the Broadway composers yeah. are having a picnic in Central Park, no. come and hang out. I mean, yeah. that, that does not happen. So
0: how does that feel, because there's a natural human instinct when we go into any community that we want to be respected, that we want to be liked, you know, that we want people to like our work and to like us as people, that we want to feel like that we fit in. You know, if you're, if you've gone to the, if I go to the Edinburgh Festival, the Montreal Festival, you want people to be talking about your show. You want other comedians to think that you're a funny comedian. Like these are just natural human instincts and impulses and... Me, much of what they think about you has nothing to do with you. Of course. Yeah. Like it has, it, it has to do with perhaps, like you said that you're from another country that you have this name and we're going to get back to the name. Cause I'd like to ask about the idea of like nominative de- de- determinism when it comes to what other people think. But, um, wh- what's that like, just from a human perspective? Um,
1: it is, it really, it really f- forces where you, where you focus. So, um, I can, I can, like, without, um, with a big caveat of saying, um, you know, I'm not grinding any axes, just talking about my own personal experience on King Kong, it was very, I didn't have a great time. And yet there is, there was so much good, so much good. Um, it got me to New York. It got me a visa. There were moments of incredible creative discovery. There were, there were moments of. Um, shared creative discovery with the team seeing things come together there were moments of wonder and joy um there were really lovely human moments um uh there were moments where uh, the, the, the orchestrator Christopher Yankee, is now a really great friend of mine the guy's a musical genius I just loved him the first time I met him we met at a we met at a bar to talk about the show and I invited myself back to his apartment, not realizing that New Yorkers don't just have people back to their apartment. I'm like, dude, we're going to your apartment. We're going to listen to some music. And he was like, Oh, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, whatever. I don't care if it's messy. Well, you know, like we got along really well. So there were amazing things that came out of it. Beetlejuice was, was similar. There were like big challenges and really difficult things. And, you know, like, it's a collaborative art form. So sometimes you feel like you're going, you know, you, you're kind of going crazy or there's, like, a, there's tension um, and, you know, you can't show weakness and all of those things like that are, that are really um, complex. But you just have to look for the, the good, you know. Like, people can... Crit- Anyone back home in Australia can, can go, oh, you know, the New York Times hated your show. And the capacity for that to hurt you really rests on what you, what you look at. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm doing it, doing it. It might not, this one might not be successful, but are you writing a Broadway musical? (laughs) You know, like I, it doesn't, it's not like a, a a raffle where you get the pub and they've got a thing with balls and then someone picked out a ball and they're like, Oh shit, Eddie. All right. He's got to write this musical. You know, you get there because you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm like, I can I can write. I'm working with amazing people. Um, People have, we're making great discoveries together. The cast have faith in what you're doing. You know, you're... Yeah. Um, musical director loves this you, you you know you're in the trenches with people and you're making something and you're doing it and you yeah. have to look at that even the guy who came last in,
0: in the marathon at the olympics made the marathon at the olympics yeah he qualified even, hey, yeah like, fair way in front of everybody else who's not at the olympics
1: yeah he's doing he's doing <laughs> it and you know i that's the And that's the thing, you know, I really, you really do have to focus on is just where you throw your attention. It's very easy to look at the negative stuff. And I think that we're kind of hardwired in a way to pick up on criticism. But there's also this other thing where, like, you think of the worst thing that can happen. You go to, you finally get a break and you write a musical on Broadway and you get slammed in the New York Times, like completely slammed in the New York Times. You go, okay, well, that, that would be like, that would be bad. If you were like painting scenario, you go, that would be bad. But I mean, but is it, I mean, it, it's the, the sun rises the next day. It's more an absence of what you think would be great. I think
0: often, which is like you frame it in your head or in your ultimate fantasy is that you write this Broadway musical and it gets a great review in the New York Times and it wins all these Tonys, Right. Yeah. So then the opposite of that seems really bad. Like that, it gets a bad review seems really bad. Totally, but in some ways, that's as false as how you would have felt if it got a really brilliant review. Because I'm sure you've got brilliant reviews for things that uh, aren't as good as things that you've got, you know, not as good reviews for.
1: Yeah, and it's all. And sometimes it's like for things that you you're like, wow, I can't believe I got away with that one. You know, you know what it's like. Sometimes you do a show and you're like, this is not my best show, and then everyone loves it, and you're like. People really don't know what they're talking about. Oh, mate. Of course. And, you know, there's stuff to be learnt in reviews, but then there's a lot of stuff where, like, I'm like, I don't think people know what they're talking about. Like, um, when we were in previews, there was a lot of criticism of the music of, of Beetlejuice. And, you know, I feel like I've been vindicated because we released our cast recording, and it has never streamed less than 2 million streams per week since it's been out. It's sitting in the charts higher than I think it's like the second highest, um, charting Broadway cast album, just under Hamilton. Um, I know Moulin Rouge is ahead of it now. Mm. Um, so I was like, well, God damn it. There must be something about the music and it's, it's spawned this incredible online creativity amongst the fans. People are, um, animating a lot to the music. Um, people are doing covers and there's like one of the, uh, our main protagonist, Lydia, has a song called Dead Mum and there's uh, it's like a hundred girls covering that on YouTube, you know, on the ukuleles or with backing tracks, you know. That's like, that to me is, a, is amazing. I've never had that happen with my music before where it's just gone out and it's 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 inspired people to be creative or to be inside that world. TikTok is another place where Beetlejuice went crazy. People were doing... TikTok is a weird, um, social media platform where I think people just basically mime to songs for like 30 seconds and there's all, there's like millions of Beetlejuice things on there. So it's just kind of like had this amazing life and I'm really grateful for that happening. I think I would have been okay if it hadn't. And I, and I think I would have just kind of gone, well, I'm going to write the, the next thing, but it is certainly is lovely to have, to have the show, you know, um, make an impact. Um, when for so long, I thought it was just going to get shat on and then disappear.
0: Okay. Now talk to me about the name, because I've known you for so long that I, I forget that your name, like you, know, that if somebody doesn't know your name, yes, that how many times I firstly, have you been asked in your career, do you think, is that your real name? Uh, um, how often do you get asked, is that your
1: real name? Oh, at least, at least, you know, once a week, Okay, I yeah. guess. And I guess I got to a point in Australia where, um, where I I, I stopped getting asked that and, um, you know, for better or worse, it just kind of was my, was my name. And I don't know, maybe whoever, whoever knew it was real was cool with that. And whoever thought it was a made up name, thought I was a dickhead. And that was the way
0: (laughs) everyone had had settled on their opinions and didn't need them changed one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Like,
1: Oh, that's weird. Or what a tosser. And I, I guess I didn't think about it when I went to New York, but I had to deal with it all over again. You know, um, the headlines that, that use your surname to basically tie a noose around your neck and throw you over the bridge. And, um, and I was like, I kind of, I was like, okay with it. But then sometimes I just get really irrationally angry about it. I'm like, Jesus, this is like my name. It's my name. name. It's my name. I was born Edmund Perfect. (laughs) My parents are Tom and Judy Perfect. When you rang our answering machine in the 90s, my, it was my dad's voice going, hello, you've called the perfect family, yeah. with no irony. <laughs> it's weird, and it's really weird because I I think it kind of... It, it, um, it puts me out into the world in a way that is so different from who I think I am. Right. That it's so arrogant, and it's so bombastic, and it's like... I mean, I can only imagine what people's reaction to it is. And because I work in the performing arts, it's very feasible that it would be a stage name. You know, like i if you work on the stage, it makes sense you might have a name, you know what I mean? Um, and weirdly, I've had people advise me to, early on to, to change to it change to something it. else. Yeah, away, away from it. Perfect.
0: It's perfect's too much leading with your chin, like in yeah. regard to, like you said, it's, it's okay when the review is, the show is perfect, but it, when it's, that it's not perfect or not quite perfect or whatever it is. Yes, absolutely. If, if, particularly if, if people do think that you've named yourself that, then it is the ultimate arrogance to call yourself perfect.
1: Yes, it is. It's horrible. Yeah. But when, by the time that advice came along, I'd survived mm. primary school, I'd survived high school and I was like, fuck you, I'm not changing... I, I, it's mine it's my name. It's who I am. And I'm a kind of a big believer in, you know, you, you play the cards you dealt in life. You know, whoever you, whoever you are, whatever you look like, whatever you've got, you know, you can work really hard to compensate for things where you're deficient. You, you know, you've got to find a way to be in the world with, with what you are and so I don't go. Oh, people that have changed their name, like you know Elton John or whatever, I don't go. Oh, you know what an what an idiot. Um, it's just being being me and accepting myself as I am. is just part of something. that's just something that's been important to me. Not in a kind of a, you know, I want to pull out a flag and wave it around. It's just I just don't question it. You know, I'm not really into. You know, I'm not a. I'm not particularly into to like like, I don't like plastic surgery and like all that kind of like stuff like that, that that I'm like, you deal, just deal with it. But I mean, I guess if you're born with half a face or whatever, then go for it. You know, obviously get some, get some surgery, get get a half a face, get another half a face. I mean, I guess there's that difference between like, you know,
0: people, I mean, anyone can do what they want to do, you know, like I'm not here to tell people how they should be in any regard, but you can, no, no, I no. think there are two very separate states, which is here's what's right for me versus like this idea often, and this is where the world gets complicated, which is the idea that just because this is my position and this is what I think, therefore everybody else should think the way that I think and obey by the rules that I have set totally. down for my own life. And isn't that weird though. Isn't it's it? It's like,
1: I find that extraordinary. The amount of, you know, the things that really, really shoot me to tears is like when people um, pick on what other people wear or what they do, or oh, this guy's turned himself into a into a, an iguana through plastic surgery. I'm like, good, you know, whatever you want to do. Like, who ca- who cares? Well,
0: firstly, a that maybe that's how they want to look. Maybe they're you know iguana focused yeah. B maybe they didn't want to look like an iguana, and now they do look like an iguana, and you're just making it worse by calling them all iguana face. <laughs> And maybe the fact that they want to look like, you know, they've got, there's a whole bunch of other reasons that you know nothing about, yeah, about their self-worth or how they were raised or the imagery they got when they were, anything. Who knows? Or maybe it's just a celebration. Point is, you don't know any of that shit. No. And it's none of your fucking business. Well, how, so why
1: don't you just fucking mind your own business and shut the fuck up about Iguana face? Totally. I completely <laughs> agree with that. It's this weird thing where you like, everything, everything has to be, everyone has to think the same as me. Well, get this on one side and some countries mm. they drive on the left side right. of the road and other countries, they're like, no, fuck that. are going to do the complete, yeah. complete opposite. opposite to that. Yeah. And if, and that is the world that we live in. Like if you ever had to drive, drive in, in America versus Australia, it's like, com- mm. it's so weird to rewire. Yep. Your brain. but they've just And we, decided,
0: made, we made this decision for no explainable or discernible
1: reason. No. Everyone's gone, no, I think we're just going to do <laughs> the complete opposite of that. Whereas if you were like logical, right. you go, hey guys, what are we going to do? We're going to yep. left, right, left, right. What do you Doesn't reckon? Doesn't matter,
0: but let's all agree on something so that when we let people drive in other countries, this is not as dangerous. So we can
1: drive everywhere. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. we're not going to do that. And that is the world. People think differently. People are differently, like completely different it's i yeah i find that extraordinary and and you know i i think um you know fr- freedom is incredibly important as a as a human being i i think you know you're and it's interesting in in america the conversations around um identity identity politics around representation of people that are non-caucasian either whether that's on film or on stage um What's happening with the um, trans community and visibility and acceptance of that? I mean, I, I'm i immersed in American culture and their attitudes to that, which are one set of things. And then I read Australian news still, and it's interesting to see those things too. But it is kind of extraordinary how people can't live with diversity when it makes no difference.
0: And the interesting thing is that you read that in the context of living in New York city and yeah, being involved in the theater community. It's not like you're in middle America in a flyover state. When, yeah. You know, you're having these, cause America is very different as well. You know, from place to place, from state to state, they talk about the United States of America, but the idea that there's any sort of United States in that country yeah. is like. They're that, so different. Every city is so every different. Every city is different. In a way that we don't really comprehend, I don't think, as Australians. Um, Eddie, do you mind if we... I'm going to have a bathroom break. Yeah. If that's all right. Yeah, of course. Uh, Eddie Perfect. Hello. Um, I'm back from my bathroom break. I How cannot was it? Have a good time? It was good, man. I, I, I'm at the age now where I do breakfast radio and uh, drink a fair amount of coffee and... And liquids during the morning and it means that if we're recording like we are at now about 11 o'clock or whatever it time it is now that uh i am now like an old man who can't get through yeah. an hour without going to the bathroom yeah it's pretty great mate it's pretty great getting older <laughs> i love it my hips hurt my back hurts my blood has gone my yeah. hair's gone gray
1: so funny uh, how old are you now I'm turning 42 in December. You look
0: good. You, go, you, like a, you look a very youthful looking man. Your hair is still good too. You have great hair. You've always had great oh, hair. Thanks. um thanks. I ask people on this podcast uh, whether they have a philosophy. Yeah. To life, love, work, whatever it is. I just like the idea that, you know, is there a motto by which you live or is there a, you know, perspective,
1: you know, through which you, you know, have, like think about your life? Yes. I and mean, all of them come with a caveat that i I don't particularly achieve it all the time. But, um, uh, I think kind of like one of the prevailing things, um, that is important to me is courage and, you know, that manifests itself in lots of different ways, but, um, uh, courage is a, is, is a, is a big part of my job, take, taking creative risks, um, backing yourself, um, taking a chance, um, obviously, you know, it's a financial risk just being in this job. Um, and with those kind of leaps of, um, faith and those kind of, uh, risk taking ventures, it's really important, um, to, for the people around you in your life to work very hard to make the boat and (laughs) make the best of those. Not, no point kind of like you know um leaping into the unknown and then just lying on the couch um um I think uh there was there's a great uh Looney cartoon, and I don't know whether whether this concept was originally his or not, but it's um you know the one that says there are only two emotions love and fear um and i i I've sort of seen that borne out time and time again. Um, that, that, um, love requires love, I think encapsulates all things like, um, like we were talking about before being able to accept that people are different to you, have a different point of reference to you that think about, um, aspects of their humanity in different ways to you. Um, that love being able to love them and to love people you disagree with and, um, that's really important. doesn't mean you don't have to fight for what you believe in or fight for stand up for other people. I just always kind of been hardwired to despise injustice and, um and cruelty and, um and kind of a homogenous mindset that wants everything to be kind of like similar or cookie cutter. I don't like rules very much. Um, but then I also think that I'm pretty responsible in governing myself. I don't, I've, I've always liked being one of those, I don't think the rules apply to me person, but in a, in a kind of quiet way. And I just sort of like, um, I'm not big on confrontation, but one of the things I've always done is sort of just, I don't know, you, you look at a mountain over there and you go, oh, I, I'm going to climb up that, I'm going to climb up that mountain. And I shut the hell up about it. I don't t- talk about it. Hey guys, guess what? I'm going to go climb that mountain. Or you yeah, know, So you're not one of those great. people who has the
0: sort of, you know, Babe Ruth style come out and point at the, you know, the fence you're going to hit the baseball over. You're not one of those people that has to say, I'm going to do this thing in 12 months to put it out there to the universe so that you can then do this thing.
1: Yeah, no, I, I turned up, I probably didn't have a bat in my hand. You know, like that's, I that's kind of my style, you know, I've, I, I mean, but I totally respect and admire, you know, like your Muhammad Ali's and Conor McGregor's and people that are like, oh, I am the greatest. I'm always like, wow, okay. Um, but that doesn't, so I don't talk about it, but I, I have like, you know, I have a strong sense of confidence in, in what I do. And I also really love what I do. Um, and it is the, it is the, art form that I was searching for my entire life so now that I've found it I'm like I um I write alone most of the time and so I create this crazy world where like I get to be every character in the show and I you know I, I do their voices and I and I write all re- write and record all of the instruments and I arrange it all and um you know I, I create worlds and it's just me at work every day it's quite an, an insane thing and then I have to like have little things where I'm like, okay, we're going to have our, like our coffee break now. and It's like an office I run, but just with one person. I had a Christmas party on my own, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and there are, there are things, you know, there are things where I'm like, okay, I've written a song. And today I just have to put down all the backing vocals and the guitar. And I'm like, well, this is a great, this is a great day. Cause I don't have to make any creative decisions. I just have to play and sing and jam out. So I'm like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is good, you know? Um, and you know, it is a very long, the t- the tip of the iceberg is exciting and it's full of people and it's full of, you know, um, opening nights and red carpets and, you know, all that stuff, which, um, it does it's never really appealed to me, but, it, but the, the tip of the iceberg I like is just being in a room with people and working on ideas, but underneath the water, all that iceberg is just loneliness and sort of self-doubt, but I kind of love I love being in that now. That's sort of my natural state. I've just, I've kind of like, um, beaten myself into submission where I, I enjoy being on my own and I, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm probably a little, I, I used to be kind of a good mixture of extrovert, introvert and be around people a lot. And I'm around people kind of less now. I have a, a few friends that I really love and I have my family who I spend a lot of time with. Um, and I, really enjoy being with them. My wife is an amazing person. We often drink too much wine and just like talk. That's, we just love talking to each other. We have a very um, complementary outlook on life, even though we do different things. Um, we have a, a healthy kind of um, awareness of the deficiencies of the human beings as a species, um, which I think more people should have. I think because we're the top of the food chain, we somehow think that, oh, we've nailed it, but we have, um, faults, we have very faulty brains.
0: So explore that idea a little bit more, cause I'm fascinated
1: by, by what you've said there. So
0: can you expand on that a little
1: bit? Yeah. So, I mean, I can give examples of, um, uh, disconnections of logic. Obviously everybody has unconscious bias and some people have conscious bias and it's in everything. It's not like, um. Um, pseudo scientific, you know, um, it's the reason why when you audition for a symphony orchestra, you do it behind a screen and you have no name and your name's not on the thing. You just, the, the, the panel are listening to the quality of the playing. They don't know whether it's a man or it's a woman, wh- what nationality they are, what their name is. Um, There's lots of research that says if you apply for a job and you have an ethnic name, you're less less likely to be called in for an interview. We are biased. I
0: I am familiar with the idea of bias. I mean, there's been those blind tests done, you know, like you said, where they change the name from a man's name to a female name, exact same application and Mm -hmm. different results. But I was never aware that when you audition, because I've never had to audition for a symphony orchestra, I was not aware it was done
1: anonymously. Yeah. Yeah. It's done behind a screen. And it's quite, um, it's quite. I mean, that automatically removes a lot of, a lot of... Where it's you... almost
0: like all job applications should have to happen behind <laughs> the script. I feel like that is a a broader idea that should be explored. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it could be a 12 year old girl back there. Yeah. It could be an 87 year old Vietnamese man. You don't, you don't know. And I, and I like that. I also, uh, but I also find humans incredibly um, frustrating. Obviously we're, you know, um, the, our inability to deal... Uh, with a crisis until it happens is kind of playing out with regards to climate. But um, more things like how one day you can go to a petting zoo with your kids and you can pet a lamb and it's cute. And then that afternoon it's dinner. Or, you know, you go to the Melbourne Aquarium um, and see the wonders of of the oceans from from tropical to Antarctic. And then when you get to the cafe, you can have fish and chips. You know, like it's so, we are so I mean, you can't go through the aquarium and pick,
0: something for them to cook. It's not like a Chinese restaurant. It's not like you can go back and go, can you slice me a little bit off a uh, flipper over there? Yeah, and,
1: But yes, I understand what you're saying. I'm um, being at the zoo and there was a zookeeper giving a talk on, uh, she had a, a, a macaw on her arm. Beautiful South American macaw. It was like blue. This is all, this is their diet. This is how far they fly during the day. And I love birds. I'm obsessed with birds. And, um, and while she's talking about this macaw, uh, an ibis walks over to her and she kicked it. And she's like, oh, I fucking hate those things.
0: It's the apartheid of the, of uh, the bird like, world. What, isn't is it? Yeah. what is
1: happening? What is happening? Dirty rotten bin <laughs> chickens. <Ugh. Yeah>. Yeah. <laughs> and people are really mean about ibises. And they, uh, this is the thing that makes me, I'm going to get angry about yeah. the p- attitude to ibises, calling them right. bin chickens and stuff, because we, we made them that way. Yeah. It's our fault. <laughs> I'm over this fucking rat with wings pigeon thing as well. They're, they have adapted and they're surviving in a city that we created, streets that we created, waste that we throw out into the bin, waste that we drop on the floor. Um, they're in there and they're surviving and they're dirty because we made them dirty. So I find that very annoying when people blame them for the circumstances that they are just adapted to that we created. And what and without wanting to be overly cute about it, is that not
0: a you know analogy for how we you know treat those in our human society who have also fallen through the cracks that we were the people responsible for putting
1: the cracks there in the first place? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and it's um, I mean that's the way. There's a great there's a great book called um, Sapiens, which is about. Um, the history of the human species and what is so incredible about that is, you know, from the, from first, um, homo sapien to now, which I think span 80,000, 80, years, which in terms of the lifespan of the earth, a very short amount of time, but, um, you know, we've made a lot of technological advances, but everything we've done with the exact same biology that we had when we started, when we were more hunting and gathering, um, and it's our ability to communicate that makes us a successful species um, to share information and to progress. But we, we also come from a very tribal background. The us versus them part of our brain, um, is very easily manipulated. And, um, uh, as the world gets larger, um, and, and there's more channels of communication open, we can be told who is us and we can be told who is them. And once we made that distinction, then, um, they kind of cease to have the same hu- human importance that we think people in our in group do. in and out group is such a strong, terrifying, uh, terrifying kind of part of our, our species approach to how we deal with each other. And that's playing out all over the place everywhere. You know, whether it's Muslims or it's Asians or, you know. The New York theatre community not letting Australians come in to write a few musicals. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's the big thing we need to,
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, where's that protest? But the point is, it's it's a version of the same thing. It can be escalated up to the nth degree where it becomes a very problematic thing. But they are both examples of a community, and then an other, and the natural suspicion of it yeah. just because it's other. Oh, I love it. If
1: you stand in the street and you look up at something, everyone will stop and look up with you. If you in New York, people join a line and they don't know what the line is for. Um. People, people don't know how to collectively organize themselves. Really, I mean, a lot of the time. I mean, obviously, the baggage carousel at an airport's a classic one where everyone's like right up the front. If you all took two steps back, you know, you could see your bag, you get your bag. It it would be so much better. And every time it drives me crazy. I'm like, but you can't yell out, "Hey guys, let's all just take a couple of steps back." And we 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 are not good at we have. I mean, it'd be great if we could. That is
0: such a fantastic example because it also has that example added to it, which is the amount of times where your leadership in that situation, personal responsibility is not enough. Because often in life, the attitude I would have is, you know what, I'll just worry about my own business and I'll try to leave, lead my life in a way that I can be proud of. And that in itself is the way that you change things. You change things by being the thing, by being the change, all these sort of things, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's hardly the big issue though, the baggage carousel. But I mean, I do No, I do But my agree. point
0: being is you like you'll stand a meter back and be the person who changed and then someone will just come and stand in front of you. Yeah. And you're like, well, hang on, I was being the change.
1: I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But in New York, it's great because people don't, keep quiet about it they sort of really speak up and you know like anyone that cuts in line or it's like yeah. it's a big deal cause there's a lot right. of people in new york crazy stuff happens in new york i don't know if this is relevant but i i got in line to get a coffee from starbucks and a homeless man came in behind me and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said hey man do you reckon you could buy me uh, a coffee and i was like yeah i'll buy you a coffee so I went to the front and I'm like i'm gonna have a latte and then whatever this guy's having and they were like they all looked a little bit like oh, he's buying a coffee for a homeless guy yeah. and then the guy um ordered a like, what do you want and the guy ordered this thing i never heard of i'm gonna have a double iced Frappuccino latte with whipped cream on top and it was it was a nine dollar drink <laughs> and i was like well played sir <laughs> well played <laughs> he nailed it. Right. Well, yeah. he's getting
0: maximum value out Should of Seen this thing. It looked like a it? birthday
1: cake. He's like, and it's just, he walked out with his ginormous <laughs> frothy this All drink. the
0: calories I need for two days. Yeah, mate. I've, yeah, yeah. I've thought this through. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, human beings, you talk about that book, Sapiens, which is an amazing book. Um, what is your balance between what you put out into the world through your work, through your art, and what you have to take in to fill up your brain so that you have interesting things to talk about and, you know, write music about and, you know, um, you know, kind of a, a palette with which to work. How do you balance putting stuff
1: in versus, you know, tearing stuff out? Um, that's a really good question. I I like to read a lot and I, I see quite a bit of theatre. I'm trying to go and see a lot of theatre. Uh, I listen to... Music a lot. I, I really enjoy putting on headphones and just walking and listening to music. I've gotten my ears have gotten. I think all people's ears get lazier as you get older, and it's a lot easier to just to kind of stick with the music, you know, because you you can count on that experience being enjoyable. But I do, if I'm going from A to B in New York, walking and putting on headphones and and get an album I haven't listened to and and make myself listen to it. Um, but a lot of it, a lot of it's now really coming from. The domestic, you know, the last piece I wrote for Melbourne Theatre Company, Vivid White, was all about ha- houses, buying houses, renovating houses, because that's what I was doing. And I just thought it was hilarious. The whole thing was, that's, that's what middle class people talk about. You get to a certain age and you go over to someone's house and they show you their renovation and you're like admiring a cupboard, you know, I'm like, Jesus Christ. Or, you know, they talk about schools. In New York, everyone just talks about schools all the time, or you know, um, I, I that's my world, so I write about that world. Beetlejuice was very much about what happens when, what happens when um, a fourteen-year-old a girl loses her mother, um, and her father is completely unable to deal with it, help her deal with her grief. That's what Beetlejuice, the musical was about. And, you know, my wife, Lucy lost her mum when she was eight years old and grew up without a mother, without any of that kind of, um, physical affection was very difficult for her. And she has a, you know, it's, it's sort of shaped her life. She's an incredibly strong person, um, driven person, um, you know, having all of that insecurity, she bought an apartment that she couldn't afford at the age of 25 and worked her ass off to to get, because she wanted to be in a place that she couldn't be kicked out of, you know. Like, she's a really impressive human being, but over the, however long we've been together, I mean, like, we've been together for about 13 years now, you know, I'm fairly intimately acquainted with what the repercussions of losing your mum at eight years old are on her, even though they're not mine. Um, so there, a lot of that, a lot of that Lydia's character was um, made up of her story. So, um, you know, I think it, it, it kind of has to come from life, you know, I'm writing a, I'm writing a kind of a, the beginnings of two pieces and a, a new music theater pieces. And one of them is, uh, a comedy sort of set against the Holocaust. And I've been reading a lot of, um, books on the Holocaust and, um, that's amazing because I mean whenever you start a new project it's just an opportunity to research something you don't know or you think you know but to but to kind of immerse yourself in it um, and I, I, it's almost like you just need all the information inside inside you uh, and then you can start to write and it's informed by stuff I mean no one wants to see you no, it's, your it's weird list. that your
0: opening song is it didn't happen and then the other <laughs> one the next one is the Jews run uh, Broadway I she mean run
1: Broadway <sighs> I mean, it's well, an did, interesting
0: take on the Holocaust.
1: I did one of my, my agent in New York said, don't put the Holocaust on stage. And I was like, that's a great opening number. Right. Don't oh, put yeah. the Holocaust on stage. Yeah, exactly. That's what my agent <laughs> said to me. Do it and you'll be dead to me. You know, that kind of yeah. part. Um, So yeah, I, I, that's what I, 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 books, books are really important.
0: You know. um You, you mentioned your children and I imagine when it comes to, moving overseas, taking this opportunity feels like a very, I mean, you know, I lived in the US for 10 years and, you know, was on the yeah. road as a touring stand-up comedian, yeah. you know? Um, but I don't have kids, you know, I don't, I didn't have to move a family over. They didn't have to sort of sign up to my ridiculous dream. At the end of the day, I was just, you know, it was my ridiculous dream and I was pursuing it and good or bad, I was the person who had to deal with the sort of consequences of my actions and my decisions. But when you have a wife and when you have children, it's a much bigger decision to, you know, move them all overseas. And, you know, I know that you obviously went to America because you embraced their liberal gun laws and their uh, highly functioning healthcare system. That's it. Uh, I imagine that those things uh, are things that you know must be top of mind when you have children who are you going to put into a city and an education system and a healthcare system yeah. and these sort of things that. So, how big
1: a decision is it to take your family into that situation? Well, it was. I was always going to be working on these two shows con- concurrently, King Kong and Beetlejuice, and we had a two-week rule um, when I was in Melbourne, where I, I could go and do um, a development lab in New York, but it would be two weeks, and that was about right because. You could hear on the phone that the wheels were sort of falling off by the, at the end of two weeks, and then I'd come back. Those started to get a little bit longer, and it sort of got stretched, but I knew that if I went and worked on these musicals in New York without taking the family, um, we would just never see each other. And um, we, Lucy and I just kind of – there's this instinctive thing from the beginning where we're like, we need to be together. If we start, if we start living separate lives, we will get divorced. Not – not that we, that sounds like a negative thing, but it's important for us to share experiences. I think that's, that's kind of quite a lot of research that um, suggests that uh, couples and families that share experiences, new experiences, stay together longer. And I think you have to invest in your relationship. It's really a very important, it's a very important connection that needs to be kind of nurtured. And sometimes it, you need to spend money on it Um, or sacrifice money for it or even sacrifice, you know, opportunities for it. Um, because it's the most important thing. Um, and, uh, and it's, and it's, while I feel like it's a very, our marriage is really robust and I this, we both have this kind of unshakable feeling that, um, we're going to be looking, waking up and looking at each other's heads until one of us dies, um, Things can go wrong. Things can go wrong with all sorts of things. And so um, we value it and we kind of have those those rules. And I knew I w- it would be of an adventure in New York. Um, the one thing we were terrified of is like the active shooter drills that they do in schools. Uh, our our um, elementary school ha- did something, but it wasn't it wasn't kind of so intense. But um, that's always kind of terrifying, that idea that you put your kids through that. But ultimately, they adapted very quickly, really quickly. Um and they have friends, and you know we have. There are parents at the school gates that we know, and that sort of aspect of it is happening. So it was a big, it was a big decision, and there, there is pressure when they're sort of there for you. But they're sort of. There's a great scene in um, the original Muppet movie, the 1977 Muppet movie, which is a killer film. If you haven't seen it for a while, you should go back and see. It. It's really good. There's this crazy scene where um, the whole plot is that um, as you remember, recall. Uh, Kermit is sitting in in the in the pond singing Rainbow Connection, and an agent comes up in a rowboat and goes, "Hollywood's looking for for frogs," and he's like, "Oh, going? I'm going to go to Hollywood." And that was the worst Kermit, the frog impersonation. <laughs> that wasn't great. I've never done one, <laughs> what, and you I still haven't. I didn't. I didn't commit. <laughs> I'm not going to try again. Um, you know what Kermit sounds like. So he kind of goes, he decides to go to Hollywood and all of his friends kind of come along with him and support him, help him get to Hollywood. There's a point at which I can't remember. Something happens. They get lost. there in the desert. They're not going to make it. They're by the campfire. Gonzo sings this amazing song. One of my favorite songs of all time called I'm Going to Go Back There Someday. It's where he's just sort of looking at the stars and, um, um. yeah, it's like, it's 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 a beautiful, it's a beautiful song about not looking at stars. I've never, I don't think I've ever been there, but I'm going to go back there. It's a very existential song. Kermit is sort of like depressed, gets up, walks away from the campfire where everyone's sort of listening to this melancholy song by Gonzo and he walks out into the desert in the dark and he meets himself and he has a conversation with himself and I think he's sort of shadow half is like, you know. What's, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And he said, you know, I, I went on this journey, this adventure, and, you know, I um, uh, everybody came to support me, and, and now it's not happening, and I feel like I've let everybody down. And his shadow half says, everybody is on this journey with you because they want to be on the journey with you. It's their journey too, and you have to, I'm paraphrasing, but you can't make it all about you. You have to allow people to be on their own sort of adventure. And I think that's really true of what was going on in New York. Yes, they were there to support me, but you know, it's not like they're running around with towels and cups of tea and water bottles and mopping me down, you know, they're living their own life in a different place and having, um, an adventure. And your, I just felt that like my end of the bargain was to just work really hard and to not, um, allow, uh, too much of the, outside world to affect my family that, you know, I always feel like I'm a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a protector of my family and I need to be a nurturer and all that sort of thing. So, so with that in mind,
0: when you look at the world, because I know that you're somebody who's always had a, you know, an eye to the broader implications of, you know, what's going on in the world. You mentioned the climate earlier, that was one of the things, but how do you feel about the I'm always interested in getting a bit of a, a temperature gauge. I guess that's the, <laughs> the, 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 maybe the wrong word to use, but um, about from people who have kids, about how you feel about the yeah the future for your kids. Are you a person who's filled with optimism about the future? What's, what are you cautious about? What are you scared about? You know, where do you see you know, the future that your children are going to have and how are you preparing them
1: for that future? it's um, a really good one. Uh, it's a real combination of um, of you have a very clear sense, or at least I did, when I cut their umbilical cords when they were newborns. That you're like, oh, there you go, you're you're your own person now, and most parents will tell you that having kids is a, is a really interesting process of discovering who these people are, and you get to you get to look after them and care for them and give them all the opportunities you can while they're kids, but they are certainly their own people and you don't know what they're going to do or who they're going to be. It's your job to teach them everything, you know, and to, and to, I guess, not just teach, teach um, them values, but to, to live by those values because people, because kids, you know, those parents that are like, you know, remember you got to do this and you got to do this, but if they're not doing it, the kids don't learn it. And I come, came from a family where my parents, um, if they had arguments, they happened behind closed doors and I never really knew what was going on. And, you know, my parents always wanted to kind of shield us from harm or sadness. Um, and it was, it's interesting. I mean, uh, that was just the way they were brought up and that's the way they raised me. But we, um, Lucy and I argue in front of the kids. Our kids have a argue with us and like, sometimes I'll get involved in our arguments and go, dad, you're being ridiculous or you're grumpy isn't to eat a banana and shut up. <laughs> um, you just got low blood sugar. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we function as a kind of a family all together, and, um, try to, teach our kids, what everyone tries to teach their their kids to be, to be brave, to go for it, to that they're, that they're loved, that the world is a critical place, but we're not critical of each other inside our family, because this is, you've got to have one place where you're safe. I I always find those families that criticize themselves. I'm like, where, where is your sanctuary? You know, where is your self-esteem coming from? So we're, um, champions of our children, but we're also really, really really hate um uh, meanness or or bullying or exclusion or anything like that it just takes a lot more kind of courage to be accepting of people and so um that's that's what we try and do in our family you know that we love each other and we here for each other and we support each other and we're not going to tolerate kind of nonsense and we certainly don't want anyone to be kind of spoilt or um, or think that the world owes them anything and that everyone's going to work really hard uh, and everyone's got hopes and dreams and everyone is different and unique and we want, we're going to support everyone's uniqueness. And my two kids are very different from each other, but they get along really well. One, my eldest one is super smart and has a lot of some social awareness and is great with people and great with adults and... Curious and uh, h- very hardworking and self-disciplined. I, I, none of that. I, don't, I mean, I I, feel, I always feel like a lazy person who f- forces myself to work every day, and it might look like I'm self-disciplined from the outside, but I would quite happily not work. I, it's a weird. I don't know. It's a weird distinction. But
0: no, no. I mean, that's uh, I relate to that so hard because people always describe me as being hardworking. Like it's it's one of I'm. I can happily say that it comes up a lot. People yeah. talk about you know, the capacity for hard work that I have, and I admire it in other people. But honestly, it's 25 years of hard work, despite the fact that I would prefer not to be doing any of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> to be honest, I prefer, I, yes. I am very happy just reading a book all day or watching a series all day, yeah. but, but I don't. I, I will know. do it for a day or two and then I'll go, I probably should get back to
1: making something or doing something. Like, you know. I think it's the little it's the little moment before you decide to do something that determines whether you're lazy or not. And I have a little moment where I go, oh, I guess I better do this. I guess I, I guess I better just go do this. I'm
0: lazy and I work anyway. And I would say that I am very aware of the limitations and of my, uh, my talent. And yet I keep going anyway. Yeah. Like you know, I know that I'm, I know that I'm not the best comedian in the world. I know that I'm probably not good enough to do this or this. But if someone's going to let me do it, I'll just i guess i'll do it
1: <laughs> i guess i'll go and do it anyway but do you really think that do you do you start to go i'm like now I, I i am now i know i know who i am with my art form and i know that what i have to offer is like a, a uh something that other comedians can't offer because you are you are you and you and you're in control of your material and your perspective and when and people are coming to see that and it's almost like you there's an apples and oranges thing going on in contrast to other comedians
0: well funnily enough no i don't think so i think that that perhaps and again it goes to this very thing that we're talking about though in that in my head i don't feel like that i don't have a sense of going looking back on my career and going you've worked literally consistently hosting television shows for 20 years, like you, you have a track, you did 25, you've done 25 shows at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, you know, you've won a bunch of awards, none of that in my mind in any way, like my, my perspective on what it is that I have done, like done, not even potentially could do, have demonstrably done, has not affected that voice in my head at all. And yeah, in fact, if anything, I I think that I probably have less, less confidence in my capacity to be doing these things than I did when I started, I think I was more confident right. starting out, you know, yeah. I had that bluster of youth and the enthusiasm of going, you know, and so many things left to say too. Yeah, exactly. Whereas like, you know, now I'm constantly, anyway, it's, this is not about me, but I only, uh, bring it up to explore where you're at. I'm, we haven't talked at all about your comedy career. Do you consider yourself still like, is this just all part of the one journey or is there a part of your
1: comedy career, you know, let's call it that, that you've left behind. I've left behind the part of my comedy career that is about me being the vessel for the comedy, because I am, I know I'm funnier. I know, I know that Beetlejuice, the musical is infinitely funnier than Eddie Perfect, come and see Eddie Perfect live on stage. Why? Because it's not about me. It's not limited by me. And... Because when you have multiple characters in play, then you have the, um, it's the difference between being a stand-up comedian and writing a sitcom, I guess you have the situation and you have characters in conflict and you have wants in conflict and you have the gap between who people, who people think they are and who they really are. Um, all those delicious things about people and the folly of people and the breadth of personality flaws and, um, you know, delusion, or, or all those things that are so wonderful to play with, um, and also the ability to um, then, you know, take an audience into a moment of pathos and really connect with something you know deep and emotional, and then bring that out, bring them out of that with comedy again. I I, I find that it's like I have a huge paint palette when it comes to that, and I love writing those worlds. And so when I go back to like you know my little three, three little colors or whatever. I, I, with it, when it's myself, I don't know. And I'm just not that interested in, I'm not that, I mean, I had I've done a lot of performing, but none of it ever feels as good as writing something or standing up the back of a theater watching. I mean, I've stood up the back of the Winter Garden theater so many times and seen audiences just absolutely lose their minds. And they are like the comedic, depth in the cast is incredible, but it's also the script is super funny. And the songs, you know, if I d- do say so to so myself, are funny. There's a lot of jokes in them and they're landing and, you know, I don't have to do anything. I just stand there and it, and it happens. And that is, um, that's more satisfying. I never feel like, Oh God, I wish it was me. Yeah. I wish I was the, the applause. No, you don't feel like that. No, because I am getting, I am getting the applause. I've done what every comedian wants to do make a room full of people laugh it doesn't it, it doesn't need me on the stage to, to feel good about it it feels better it feels better that i'm not there that actually feels better to me i'm like that that it's the ideas that are stronger that are that are way stronger than i am and it's it's not like a benevolent unselfish thing it's just like a oh there's a world and i can be at home eating Thai food. And then I get an email with the show report, amazing show. This number got particular big applause. This was really nice. Someone in the audience shouted out and Alex Brightman dealt with it really well, or this went wrong, but we covered it in this way, you know, and you get the, the show up on this, you know, standing ovation. And I'm like, that is great. That is, that is way more satisfying than performing, but I do miss make making music, like playing music. So I'm doing a little bit more of that, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. So that, that's my comedy now. Um, you talk about the
0: attitude the Australian, some of the Australian press had to, because there's a real, I think that you're one of those people that, um, oh, do we have to it up? Yep. All right. Hang on. Someone else needs this, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. That's fine. Yeah, how much longer? No, no. Well, we can wind, it, we can wind it up yeah. in five if yeah. they need. Is that, is that five okay? Yeah. Yep. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, that's fine. No problem. Uh, there's some compulsory questions. We're going to jump straight to those. Oh, there's compulsory okay. questions. Right. Yeah, okay. They're very quick. We've got five minutes, so right, we'll do good. a
1: lightning round. Good. What's your greatest strength? Um, Mental health. Uh, oh, I
0: wish I could explore that, but we'll do it another time. Weakness. What's your biggest weakness?
1: Um, probably smoking cigarettes when I shouldn't be.
0: No. Uh, yeah. Okay. But you've got such a great voice though. So it does help that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I gotta get that. <laughs> 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 uh, career highlight. Um, probably opening night of shame on the musical was, that was extraordinary. What do you think happens when we die? Uh, nothing. Nothing at all? Uh, well, our bodies go in the ground and then they decompose and. Do you think about death much? Occasionally. Um, it, do you think that thinking
0: about death affects the way you live your life? Not as much as it should. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a TV show called Heroes. Um, there was a villain in the TV show Heroes who had the capacity to steal superpowers from other superhero people. Right? right. But he was like a villain. He was a killer. He would kill them and steal their superpower. You don't need to kill someone. Right. But you can steal anybody's superpower. A skill from anybody in the world. What skill would you would you like? There's a scene
1: in um, the great film, Armadeus, um, based off the Paul Schaeffer play, um, where Armadeus is writing one of his symphonic works at a billiard table, and just with, just with a pen and ink, with a quill and ink and he's rolling a billiard ball table around, just catching it with one hand and rolling it while he writes out this thing. And I, as a kid, I was always like, if I could get, have the ability to take the music I hear in my head and, and immediately pour it out onto paper or into sound or into the world, um, that, would be, that would be the superpower I want. And I've worked very hard to get close to that, but it's not, it's never going to be all the way there. Like, oh, I hear this and now, boom, it's out. That would be my superpower. I have a time machine. I don't have a time
0: machine, but I have a time machine for the sake of this question. This is the final question, by the way. Thank you so much for doing this, mate. I could have honestly talked to you for another hour. But oh, it's we, been it's, so much fun. Yeah, it's good to catch up and yeah. it's nice to see you. And uh, you're a lovely man and I've always... Had a great deal of uh, affection for you and it's nice to oh, have likewise, the capacity well. to be able to sit down and have a chat. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, uh, so, mate, can I uh, ask you this one? So, time machine, round trip. Uh, you can go back to a moment in your life, revisit it, change it, or you could go back to a moment in history and revisit it or change it if you'd like.
1: But it's a round trip on a time machine. What do you do with it? That's a nightmare question for me because I, I don't even like looking at photos, uh, old photos. Maybe of my kids, but not even then I like I find the past it, like if if not painful um uh i i I just I'm a real forward person, I just keep moving forward and i don't look back so i would if the, if i literally if there was a time machine you go back and do something i wouldn't i wouldn't touch it I've... that
0: is a perfectly legitimate answer to that question you're the first person who hasn't taken the trip but i've always said it is well within your rights to say no thank you i'm fine <laughs> <laughs> and i'm glad that you did uh, mate it's been a pleasure we need to get out of this studio but right. thank you so much thank you